0: Life is full of surprises, but one thing that should not surprise us is that there is going to be suffering in this life. Sometimes it does surprise us. We act like no one told us there would ever be anything hard, but the Bible warns us. The Bible lets us know. That's one of the things we're going to be, a big thing we're going to be talking about today in this message from First Peter. We're also going to be talking about the diet of worms. And if you don't know what that is, that might be a surprise too. You might be saying, oh, uh, Pastor, you're going to talk about eating worms? This is kind of a strange thing. Wow, well, we need to talk about this. Today is actually a really big anniversary of a really important event in history. So I just got to talk about this today as well. Let's read today's passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12-19. Beloved... I want to stop right there. Just realize this is being addressed to us. Peter's writing this, but from God through the Holy Spirit to us and addressing us as beloved. Remember this, no matter what comes after this, whatever God is calling us to do in this life and through this passage, he is speaking to believers as as beloved, deeply loved by God. Beloved, do not be surprised Therefore let, us, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As we think about what God is teaching us in this passage, the first truth I think that we need to get out of this is to not be surprised by suffering. Christian, don't be surprised by suffering again it passage starts says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you we need to realize that suffering is something that is not abnormal for the christian life and this has been a huge theme of first peter this is something that is, has not been just dropped on us as, as something brand new that we didn't see this coming. A big theme of 1 Peter has been telling us that we live in this world as exiles, as, as strangers, as people that are out of place because we follow Jesus Christ and we don't follow the loves and everything that the, the world is going after. And because the world is in a rebellion to Jesus, they're going to be uh, upset with those that associate with them and that follow Jesus Christ. We need to expect this. This isn't the first time in First Peter. It's, it's warned us about suffering and persecution and hardships that are going to come if you follow Christ. This isn't even the first time in Scripture that we have been told this. So it is uh, telling us, and we need to realize that, therefore, suffering is not abnormal for the Christian life. Sometimes we think it is, and we, we talk about, oh, you know, suffering might be coming, but in reality, it's, it's not really here. We take for granted our safety and security. None of you are really worried that uh, the the Gestapo is going to, you know, come through the door and and we're going to be arrested. But if we were living in most of the world, this would be a real concern. If we were living at just any random period of time in the last 2,000 years of church history, we'd realize the odds of being in danger would be greater than the odds of being in, in safety. So, this, this bubble of safety we have is actually the more uh, abnormal thing. But we still have trials. We still have, have suffering that is going to come in one way or another. It may be a hard type of suffering or a softer type, but this is par for course in, in the Christian life. And so, Peter wants us to realize that this is the case. Many people are surprised in suffering. And sometimes it's churchgoers because they've been taught some kind of a false gospel that God's mission is to make your life comfortable and safe and easy, to give you your best life now, or health and wealth. And everything should go really great for you, and if it doesn't, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith, and God just wants to, you know, just make everything smooth and golden for you. But that's not the message of Scripture. And that's why I'm glad that, that we go through books like 1 Peter, and we don't just pick and choose. It, a lot of people would be really happy if I... I just told you week in and week out that God wants nothing but to you know give you cosmic backrobes and make you make you feel wonderful all day long but and give you all the earthly delights that you want that 's not the message of scripture i 've got to teach you we have to hear reality from the Lord God and what He actually has to tell us so sometimes people are misled about this, but we also live in a culture right now that views any type of suffering as being something that that should be avoided at all costs. Any type of suffering, any type of, of discomfort that there is, that we need to uh, just find a way at whatever cost to, to not have to go through that. And with that in mind, this past year I was reading a, a new book that came out by, by Rod Dreher called Live Not by Lies. Now, Rod Dreher, I don't uh, necessarily agree with everything that he writes, but there's a lot of really good stuff in, in this book. And what he's doing in this book is he's talking a lot about uh, the history of those that um, came out of communist Europe and Russia and those that were part of the totalitarian states back then when when it was under communism. And a totalitarian regime, think of the word total, okay, that's in there. It, It means that the government is insisting, demanding, to have complete, total control over every aspect of your life. And it's still, it was like that under communism in in Europe and Russia. It's still like that for those that are in China. Uh, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only one that should have total control over every aspect of our life, in and out. But there are governments that think they, the government should have that. And they can tell you what to do. They can tell you uh, what you know, freedoms or not they will allow you to to have. Uh, direct you as far as your, your your job and what you do. And also, it doesn't just stop on the outside, but the inside too. You know, you better not commit you know, thought crimes. You better not have the wrong views. They will tell you what to think. They will tell you what to believe. They want total control over your whole life. And this is what it was like for those that went through this under communism in Europe. And in the book, what uh, Rodriguez is doing, he's interviewing a lot of the survivors that came out of communist Europe and talking about the experience that they had. And one of the the things that they notice is how much uh, things that are going on today in America and in the West are paralleling things that that happened under communism, pressuring people to uh, become a totalitarian state. And in the book he talks about that right now it's not a, a hard totalitarianism in the sense that for the most part you know, nobody is, is putting a gun to your head saying agree with us or, or, or you're, we're going we're gonna to kill you or we're going to lock you in jail and never see you. For the most part it's not like that. But he says it's a soft totalitarianism where it's it's different kind of pressure. There's social pressure uh, that comes from society, that comes from government. There's financial pressure comes from big business, too. And we see that, you keep seeing that in the news, that even with their states, that if they pass a law uh, that uh, the people don't like, that big business will, you know, will ban them or won't do business with that state or they'll, they'll pull their you know, basketball tournaments or the all-star you know, game out of there to, to punish them. And so we see this ramping up, of this, this soft totalitarianism, that you better get in line. You better believe what we tell you to believe, that we want you to agree in every aspect. And so as he talks about this, there was uh, a chapter in here that he had called The Gift of Suffering as he's analyzing this. And I thought this was really helpful and really fits with what we're talking about here today, not being surprised about suffering. I want to read a few paragraphs of this that I think are really helpful. He writes... I'm riding on a Budapest train with a Hungarian friend in her early 30s. We are on our way to interview an older woman who endured real persecution in the communist era. As we bump along the city streets, my friend talks about how hard it is to be honest with her friends her age about the struggles she faces as a wife and a mother of young children. Her difficulties are completely ordinary for a young woman, learning how to be a mom and wife, Yet the prevailing attitude among her generation is that life's difficulties are a threat to one's well-being and should be refused. Do she and her husband argue at times? Then she should leave him. Are her children annoying her? Then she should send them to daycare. She worries that her friends don't grasp that suffering is a normal part of life. Even a part of a good life, in that, it, in that suffering teaches us how to be patient, kind, and loving. She doesn't want them to give her advice about how to escape her problems. She just wants them to help her live through them. The author goes on, As we step off the tram and walk to our meeting, we talk about the irony of the social about-face that has overtaken post-communist Hungary. The woman I am about to meet like all the Christians I've been interviewing, allowed the suffering inflicted by the communist regime to deepen her love for God and for her fellow persecuted believers. Now, in liberty and relative prosperity, the children of the last communist generation have fallen to a more subtle, sophisticated tyranny, one that tells them that anything they find difficult is a form of oppression." For these millennials, unhappiness is slavery, and freedom is liberation from the burdens of unchosen obligations. As it goes on, these are the people who would welcome the pink police state. This is the generation that would embrace soft totalitarianism. These are the young churchgoers who have little capacity to resist because they have been taught that the good life is a life free from all suffering. If they have been taught the faith at all, it has been a Christianity without tears. Finally, these lessons are important for us to take into our hearts. The days to come are going to force American Christians to confront personal suffering for the faith in ways that most have never done before. Besides, it cannot be emphasized strongly enough. The old totalitarianism conquered society through fear of pain. The new one will conquer primarily through manipulating people's love of pleasure and fear of discomfort. I thought that was a very insightful of analysis of what we do see going on these days. It's even not so much uh, a fear of, of being caused pain, but just that any type of comfort, discomfort that people have. And people view today that you just have to flee from any of this. And there used to be a time where people realized that, that suffering was more of a normal part of life, and, and it is, it's hard to get away from it. But now we live in a world where you, know, you, you have a slight headache. You can take some aspirin, you can have relief from that. Most of history, you didn't even have aspirin. You, you lived with these things. No, I praise God for aspirin. I'm glad that we have it. You know, we we should try to alleviate suffering, and we can. But the problem is that we've grown so used to being able to get rid of suffering that we think that every type of suffering needs to be done away with. But this passage reminds us that suffering is a normal, expected part of the Christian life. So when we think about this, too, why should we not be surprised by suffering? And we see a few examples or a few reasons for this, right in, in this passage. And one, right off the bat, is uh, why we should not be surprised is that we, we really were warned about this. That this is not, again, like I said, the first time, even in First Peter, where it has talked about the fact that there really is uh, suffering in this life. And this is something that Jesus told us as well, too. He said, uh, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There's lots of examples. You can fill up pages of Scripture warning us about this. We can't say that God never told us. If we're in our Bibles, if we're listening to it, God warned us this is going to be part of the life, Christian life, for now at least. We also know that God has a plan. We see in this passage, it says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come. You to test you gives part of the purpose If God is allowing these to happen, if God is ordaining these to happen to be part of your story in our lives, he has purposes for them. They're not happening by accident. They're not random things. The sufferings, the persecution, the hardships that we endure, God has a plan to work through them and ultimately for his glory. And that ultimately, that ends up being for our good too. But it's for his glory. It's for the work that he is doing. There are all kinds of reasons. Working in us, changing us, building our, our character, and the reason that it gives here is, is to is to test us. Part of it it shows the, the the reality, the testedness of our of our faith. We also see here that Christ also suffered. It says, "Be rejoiced insofar as you share Christ's suffering." If you're a Christian, you're united to Christ. You are also united to him in in his suffering. We don't have a God that is up in the, the, the comforts of heaven and has always just been there, and now he's commanding us to suffer and do something that he was never willing to do. That the Son of God was, was sent, that he willingly came down and lived a lot of suffering, even before he went to the cross. And he came to, to go to the cross. None of us have, have been nailed to a cross. Now, there have been other people that have been crucified, but even those other people, when they were crucified, weren't at the same time as a physical pains taking on the, the, the wrath of God, the, the curse for, for humanity, absorbing uh, eternity in hell for, for believers and doing this. But That's what Jesus did for us. He is not, therefore, when he calls us to suffer with him, he is not calling us to do something different than what he was willing to do. So we have him as an example And we know that he knows what it is like. He knows even more how to suffer and what an awful thing it is and what he calls us to do. But the fiery trials, and they can be fiery, God uses them to test and purify us. And we don't know exactly what Peter knew was coming down the pipe. He probably knew that there was persecution and there was more persecution coming, Peter's probably writing this from Rome, and Nero was there, and in the near future, there would be a fire in Rome, and Nero would blame it on the Christians, that, oh, the the city burnt down, it's the Christians' fault. They did it. And then start persecuting Christians to retaliate, retaliate, even though they they were innocent of this. And some would be killed by, by lions and wild animals at the gladiator games. And Nero also... He would, this is just sadistic and sick, uh, he would take Christians for his garden parties and he would put them on a pole and cover them with flammable pitch, light them on fire as, as human torches for his parties. So there would be this fire in Rome. Nero would blame Christians and put many to death with fire. He wanted to destroy with fire, but the fiery trials that God uses, he's using these to test us and to purify us. For different purposes. So we're not surprised. Next we see that we should also not be ashamed of the name of Christ. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Not be Christian, do not be ashamed of the name of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler yet if anyone suffers as a christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify god in that name talks about christ or his name being a christian that means we're named after him if you're if you're a christian and in both of these it talks about uh not being ashamed but but glorifying being being glad in this you know christ's name when it talks about this your name is your reputation This isn't just an arbitrary label. When it talks about your your name, talk about having a good name or a poor name, this is the reputation that you have. So what is is Christ's reputation? And are we willing as Christians to, to be a part of his reputation? We live for his reputation. We are called to live for his reputation. We should be honored to suffer for the reputation of Jesus Christ. And again those that are against Christ that are in rebellion to him they're going to be against those that that follow Christ. If you call yourself a christian you 're calling yourself a christ follower. Actually, those that were first called Christians in acts eleven twenty six it says they were called that in Antioch by the unbelievers, and they meant it as a disparaging thing. Uh you Christians blah. they didn't mean it as a as a real positive thing; they meant it as a uh, a disparaging remark, you, you you Christians, you follow this uh, crazy person that thought he was God, that let himself be crucified, and they would have all kinds of slander about Jesus and about Christians as well, too. And we see that, that just as Christ's reputation is slandered, uh, they're going to attack your reputation, too. That's going to be part of it. You could try to be the, the kindest neighbor that you can, and we should we can try to do good to other people, but there's going to be people that unfairly attack you. And even in 1 Peter, we've seen this already. Let me remind you of a few passages. 1 Peter twelve two twelve says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 3.16-17 through 17, talks about having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if you're slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this is kind of a repeated concept, even in 1 Peter. And this isn't Peter just wasting ink, this is him emphasizing this, because he wants us to, to get this through our head, to store this up in our heart that there's going to be slander, and he often talks about the fact that make sure you don't have it coming, that you're not actually having this coming because you're a a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. You know, all suffering isn't uh, necessarily something that God appreciates, because sometimes it's because you got it coming for what you did, so don't do that. But even if you're living an honorable life, there's going to be people slandering you, and the response to that is not doing evil, but it's doing good. Responding with, with good and that God can work through that. You know, even in the first century, well, Christians were, were slandered. Uh, we already talked about how they got blamed for this fire in Rome by Nero. But do you know what else Christians were accused of and slandered as in, in the early church? They were accused, Christians, and this was spread around, that, oh, you're a Christian? Well, we know about you. They said Christians were, were atheists. They committed incest, and they were cannibals. Think of that. Christians, that, those were the rumors going around and being spread that Christians were atheists who committed incest and cannibalism. And the reason that they spread that around was because uh, everyone else said, well, we worship all the gods. You know, there, there's Zeus and Apollos and all these gods, and you Christians, you don't worship the gods. So you're a bunch of atheists. Well, uh, It is true that we don't believe in almost all the gods except for the one true God. We're not polytheists, uh, but we're not really atheists because we don't believe there's no God. We believe there's one God. We're monotheists, but yeah, we don't believe in the gods, plural. So they use that as an unfair slur that Christians were, were atheists. But what about incest? Well, that's because they spread it around because they heard, well, you Christians, when you get together, they would celebrate you know, communion of the Lord's Supper, and we know what that is. But in the early church, uh, they referred to it as, as a love feast. And so we think we understand why they would call it a love feast because they would um, partake of the elements, the, the, the bread and the cup, and it was part of their, their Christian love for, for each other and for the Lord. But the pagans, and they're all into all kinds of, you know, kinky things, and they're thinking about this, you know, through their perversion. They're thinking, oh, love feast. Well, I can imagine what goes on in your love feast. And they said, and we notice you Christians, you're referring to others as as your brother and sister, and everyone's your brother and everyone's your sister. So you're doing these love feasts with your brother and sister. That's incest. So they accuse atheists and incest. And then cannibalism, too, because they said we hear that you, you eat flesh and you drink blood when you get together. You eat the flesh of your founder and, and drink his blood. So you're a bunch of cannibals, too. So these are the things that they spread. So if there are people at work or people at school that are saying some off-the-wall things about you as a Christian because they know you're a Christian and saying these things are not true, and there's all kinds of stuff. And I don't know what it might be for you, some personalized attack, but right now, a lot of people want to make it, you're a Christian, especially a conservative Christian. Well, you're, you're toxic, you're a, you're a hater, uh, or you're racist or misogynistic or whatever it is. And we need, now one, we need to remember, don't actually be those things. I mean, there are some people that are sinners and that, that are uh, doing bad things that they got to come in if they're really being like that. But we understand that the real message of Scripture is, uh, not to be those things, and we're not. But we shouldn't be surprised when people misrepresent us. How did people in the early church confront this? Well, there, there were times where they, they taught against it, but what really made the difference was the type of lifestyle that they led, the love that they showed to neighbor and, and to each other. They changed people's perception, and it took time, but by doing things like caring for the poor, by caring for widows and orphans, people that didn't have anyone else to take care of them, visiting Christians that were in prison and abandoned there, showing acts of compassion during famine and, and earthquakes and war. They would take in abandoned infants. In those days, instead of um, abortion, uh, when they didn't want uh, their children, and especially a lot of the, the girls, uh, if you didn't want your, your baby, you'd give birth, and you'd just leave the baby out on the street to die. Or maybe you take it to the, the city dump and you just abandon your baby. And the Romans, they considered that, hey, that's socially acceptable. That's fine to do. And the Christians realized, no, these are, these are precious lives in the image of God. And they would go and they would rescue these abandoned infants. And people saw them caring for these, uh, these, these people that everyone else was discarding. They also saw that they would care for even people that, that weren't Christians, taking care of them. In fact, there was an emperor named Julian the Apostate, and this was after the empire, uh, some emperors were Christian, and Julian wanted to bring it back to the good old days of paganism, and so he wanted everyone to believe that Christians were these awful, terrible people, but he was irritated because he was finding it hard because there was the things that people were saying about Christians, but when people used their eyes and they saw what Christians were doing, They realized, you say these Christians are terrible people, but we see them serving the poor and helping each other and and living in love towards one another. Julian, we actually have a record that he wrote and he complained. Uh, He said that that, um, the Christian faith, quote, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers as through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. So he's irritated because he wants to say these Christians are bad, but they keep loving and serving each other. That's what we should be doing too. People are going to be slandering. Slander is going to slander. haters is going to hate. But let's be Christians that we keep loving. And it's the right thing to do even if people don't see it but also there are going to be people that see it, and God is going to use that to make a difference. And that's why Peter keeps telling us, keep doing good, even in spite of all of this. So if you're united to Christ, you're also united in his reputation. And right now, there's going to be some slander. Jesus suffered first, and then there's glory. And the same way for us, there's glory coming, there's good things, but right now we endure this. One of the things we have to ask ourselves, though, is what do we care about more? Do you care more about Christ's glory? Or do you care more about your comfort, about your safety, about your security? Live for Christ's glory. The last section here, we also have the message that tells us this Don't suffer forever without a Savior. There's suffering that we have right now in this life for a little while. But you don't want to have the real suffering that goes on forever and ever and ever. If you die without a Savior, how awful is that? We have the suffering that we have now. It has a purpose, and God's going to use it, and it's for God's glory. If you die without a Savior, if you refuse that offer of salvation in Christ, then you have nothing to look forward to for eternity but, but suffering to pay for your own sin when you could have had Christ who had paid it for you. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So there is judgment. It's going to start with us. The word here for judgment can have also the idea of not not condemnation, but evaluation of testing. And we've seen that back in chapter 1-7, talk about testing by fire. And for us, the judgment is not to punish us, but it is to test us. It purifies us, and it shows who the real Christians are and who are the ones that are just pretending. Because there are going to be people that go to church because mom and dad make you go, or grand and grandpa. Our family's always gone to church, but, but you've never been born again. God isn't really important to you. It's convenient for you to go, and it makes life better. But if life stopped being better because of being a Christian, you wouldn't be here. And that's why a lot of people in America have stopped claiming to be Christians. It used to be beneficial. You had some you know, kind of social capital. It made you look like a good person. But now, in a lot of people, well, you don't seem like a good person to be a Christian, so people have stopped pretending they are Christians. So for us, yeah, the, the, the fires of judgment are a means of testing to see who's real. It's a sense of evaluation. flushes out the false Christians. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? When it says obey here, it doesn't mean that you're saved by obedience like good works. It just means responding to the gospel in the right way. That you're, you're, you're hearing it instead of blowing it off. You're recognizing that I am a sinner. I need to turn from my rebellion and turn to Christ as my Lord and Savior. Entrusting myself to him. And if the righteous is scarcely saved that can be translated, save with difficulty, what will be the become of the ungodly and the sinner? If there's enough trial and, and suffering for us now, how much worse is it going to be later on for those that die without a Savior? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Although Christians... Will suffer in this life. It is nothing compared with the eternal suffering of those who refuse to be saved by entrusting their souls to Jesus Christ, because that goes on forever. Suffering is part of God's sovereign will. It says this: who suffer according to God's will. It's part of, part of God's plan. He has it for His purposes. The suffering that you'll go through is not by accident. It is not just some random roll of the dice, and this is what landed for you by fate. God is going to use us, and he has special purposes for it. He is in control even of your suffering, and he means it for, for good. And through this, we're called to entrust ourselves to him. I love how it's worded there. I love how to think of that as a way of describing even what our salvation is like. We're not saved by being good. We're not saved because I can endure this suffering and I'm a strong Christian or because, well, I've um, you know, d- started doing all these good things. We're saved by, by entrusting ourselves to the arms of one that is faithful, one who, who loves us and cares for us and died on the cross for us. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. I told you I was going to talk about the diet of worms. And I want to talk about this. I need to talk about this, because this is a big anniversary. This is a 500-year mark for something really important that happened, 500 years. Today, exactly, happened originally, in April 18, 15,21, 500 years ago. And this has to do with Martin Luther. And so this is a picture, an artist, a uh, picture of Martin Luther. And some of you, uh, just to make sure, some of you might be looking at this and saying, wait a second, I know what Martin Luther looks like. That's not Martin Luther. I've seen him at, you know, pictures from the uh, marches, and I have a dream speech. It doesn't look like Martin Luther to me. Okay, just to clarify, uh, you might be thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., okay, the the civil rights uh, advocate from the mid-20th century, this, uh, this is Martin Luther, lived about 500 years ago. Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. And as important as they both were, as far as world history and everything, Martin Luther, huge, big deal. I mean, it's uh, beyond belief. I mean, it affects everyone, no matter what kind of religion you were. Because back until his time, this is when he's, he's in Germany, where basically all of uh, Western Europe uh, and that part of the world was all part of kind of one church. We would call it the Catholic Church uh, today, but it was all kind of one church and headed by the Pope. And <clears throat> through the centuries, there had been a lot of um, corruption that had seeped in. I mean, there were popes that were just blatantly uh, evil and wicked. Um, even a lot of Catholic historians would, would recognize this there was a lot of human teaching that crept in and false teaching about uh, even about salvation a lot of this teaching that got viewed to be as on the same level as scripture or in a lot of ways even higher than scripture what the church's human teaching was and so this is kind of the situation that Luther was was born into and so Luther when he was a young man he was 21 years old and he was Uh, traveling to to his university, he was studying law. His dad wanted him to become a lawyer, and that was his plan. And he got caught in this thunderstorm while he's out there. And uh, lightning is is crashing all around him. He doesn't have shelter, and he is terrified that he is going to die. And there's a bolt that hit really next to him and almost killed him. And during all this, he cries out at one point, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. So he calls out, not calling out to to Jesus, uh, but to to St. Anne, one of the saints, and he survives. He makes it through this storm, and he makes good on his vow. So he joins the local Augustinian monastery in Erfurt in Germany. Now, monks, they're not exactly the same as as priests, but uh, they would dedicate themselves for the rest of their life to uh, religious practices, Serving the Lord and really trying to save their souls through their good works and efforts. So when he went, they would give him the monk haircut, the tonsure, where you'd have this kind of like halo of hair. You'd start wearing monk clothes, this really scratchy uh, clothes. Um, You would take vows of of poverty, so you wouldn't own anything that would be yours. Vows of obedience uh, to your uh, your your father, your master in the in the monastery. Vows of celibacy, so you would never get married. And so you would do this, and they would have this new lifestyle, kind of uh, they would beg for their food, they would have prayers, seven times a day, getting up in the middle of the nights for long prayers, and all these different religious observances, burning candles, doing chants, and all of this, they believed would uh, help them to, to come to God and to receive grace. And Luther, especially. He had an awareness that he was not right with God. He had what the Germans had a word for it called Anfektungen. And this was this Anfektungen was an anxiety of soul or spirit. As he, as he longed to be right with God, but he felt and he realized he wasn't right with God. He was, he was terrified of this. He didn't love God. He was terrified of him because he realized that God was holy and that he was a sinner. And so Martin Luther decided that he was going to try and do everything he could to be the best monk possible so that he would make himself right with God. So he, they already had all these disciplines and all these prayers. He would do extra. He would go above and beyond. He would starve himself for for days on fasting, having just a few, uh, not even a few crumbs, where it started damaging his health and well-being. To mortify his flesh, he would sleep on the the cold floor without any heat without any blankets clothing to to mortify his his flesh he thought he would do confession because it was taught that sin in order for it to be forgiven had to be confessed to a priest they taught that salvation uh, came from god but it was dispensed by the church and they controlled it and so if you had to be saved you had to confess your sins to a priest And then they would tell you what to do, say Hail Marys or do other acts of penance, and then you'd be forgiven. And Luther took this really seriously. He thought, I'm going to make sure I'm not missing anything. Because if a sin has to be confessed to a priest, I better remember this sin. And what happens if I miss something? And so he would go to, Stelpitz was the name of his confessor, and sometimes he would meet with him and confess sins, and he would try to think of everything, big, small, or little, that that he did wrong, and sometimes he would go on confessing sins for six hours a day. And eventually Stoupet said, stop bringing me all this giant list of things. Don't, you know, if you're going to bring something big, bring a big sin. Not these small little insignificant sins. But Luther recognized that it wasn't the size of the sin that mattered, really. It was who it was against. That even a small sin against an infinitely holy God was something that would send you to hell. Something that was a big deal, and so it terrified him, thinking what if i what if I miss something and what if I forget about it? and he also realized uh, that even if he could remember every sin that he had now, what about tomorrow? They just keep coming, and he realized that it wasn 't just that he committed sins, but that he had a sinful heart, that he was corrupt to the core. He realized that trying to solve his his guilt, his sin problem through confession. It said, It's like trying to mop up the floor while the water is still running, that this isn't going to work. And so this spirit of infecting of him that he had, this terror of not being right with God remained. You know, a lot of people look back and they say, well, Martin Luther, he might have had some you know, illness or you know, some mental problems for him to be all concerned like this. I think those of us that don't have a concern like this, we're the ones that have a, a detachment from reality. The truth is, God is holy. And if we are sinners at all, and we have unforgiven sin, that should really concern us. But Luther was not able to find a way to, to get rid of this guilt and this anxiety. You know, eventually, Stelpitz assigned him to start studying and teaching scripture as a professor of theology. And this was something even in the monasteries that they didn't do a lot of, but he assigned him to do this. And as Luther started to study scripture, he started to notice things. He studied especially Psalms, Romans, and, and Galatians. And in the Psalms, he noticed how often the psalmist would throw himself on the mercy and forgiveness of God without trying to please God through good works. And that seemed odd to him. What, how can he do that? But then especially when he got to the book of Romans and he's studying and he's seeing things in the book of Romans. And one thing he notices, especially Romans 1, 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And for him, the, 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 he was hung up on this phrase on the righteousness or the justice of God. He viewed this as this thing that was against him. But eventually, as he kept Studying this and thinking about what does it mean that the just shall live by faith. He looked at other places in Romans and saw like in Romans three twenty where it says, For by the works of the law no man will be justified in his sight, that the law brings us knowledge of sin, but it doesn't heal us of our sin. And Romans four talks about that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. And so it started to click he started to recognize the Bible's actual message about how we can be saved and how we can be right with God. Luther wrote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He was finally free from this crushing sense of guilt and anxiety of not being right with God because he saw from Scripture the message that we're saved by by faith alone. Grace alone received through faith alone based on what Christ did. As he continued to study and, and see this message, he became bothered by other things that he's seeing around him. Uh, there was a man uh, named uh, Tetzel. And Tetzel uh, was just outside of town. He was selling what were called indulgences. And in, those, well, in their theology, they taught that uh, for most people, even if you are in a state of grace, okay, that when you die, you don't go immediately to heaven. Instead, you go to purgatory. Now, I believe that's a man-made false doctrine but that's what they taught. And except for a few very special saints in in their way of describing it, you died, your expectation, you go to purgatory, and it might be for millions of years to continue to be purged of your sins. And that finally, after that, you then would be able to go to be with God in heaven. Now, if you died in mortal sin, then you just go straight to hell. But even as far as people that were in a state of grace, your destiny was purgatory next. That's something very joyful to look forward to. But if you took the sacraments, if you're a faithful churchgoer, you could get time off of, tur- of purgatory. And if you did less sins, you could keep you know, those years from accumulating. But also, you could buy an indulgence. And it was literally a piece of paper that you could purchase. Tetzel was, was selling these. They were raising money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And it was kind of like selling salvation that if you bought one of these, uh, diff- there were different types, and you might be able to get 100 years off purgatory, or some where you could get a million years off of purgatory. There's some that were full indulgences where it, w- it would cover you completely. And so it seemed like a really good deal. And you could not only buy them for yourself, you could buy them for relatives. And they would say, think of poor grandma. Your grandma who loved you, and she is in purgatory in the flames. And you could help her just by making a donation and having an indulgence in her name. And Luther is looking at this and saying, this is not biblical. This is wrong. This is messed up. And so on October 31st, 1517, uh, he did something incredibly important. He nailed what's called the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And There were 95 statements that was what a thesis is uh, talking about what he believed were false teachings and things that he thought, we need to talk about these issues. And he posted them up there. I think October 31st, we think, well, that's Halloween. Well, they didn't celebrate Halloween as Halloween, but the reason it's called that is because the next day is All Saints Day, November 1st. And uh, for All Saints Day, if you are a saint, you are holy. To be holy to be considered holy is to be hallowed. Like we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It means to be considered holy. So if you're saints day, you're hallowed, and this is the day before, the evening before, it is hallowed Eve. Hallowed Eve, Halloween. That's where we get the name from. There really is. So he pins it there so that people would see it the next day. They were written in Latin because he wanted to be kind of a scholarly debate, but people took it down and they translated into German, and they just started making copies. And so we usually mark this as the beginning of what's called the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation. And that's why it's the case that everyone isn't, uh, isn't, isn't Catholic. They were trying to reform the church. At first they didn't want to leave the church. They wanted to reform it. But eventually they excommunicated Luther and uh, all the other Protestants, and we became separate. But it all goes back to this that happened in 1517. So a few years ago, uh, when we had the 500th anniversary of that, we commemorated that and did some teaching on, uh, on this. But after this, Luther became really famous in Europe, he became really a household name, and he did a lot more writing about things that were uh, biblical teaching and also talking about the abuses and the corruption and false teaching that he saw going on. Now, with this, he made him popular with a lot of people and very unpopular with the official church authorities. And so one time in 1520, the pope released a papal bull. That's not an actual, like, the animal bull. Uh, It's a papal bull, meaning it's from the pope, and a bull is an official document. And so this document was excommunicated uh, Luther, kicked him out of the church. When Luther received it, they uh, commemorated this, doctrine, or this document by having a bonfire and publicly burning it. That's what he thought of it. And then Luther was summoned to appear at the Diet of Worms. Now, when we say that, we think, well, is this about eating worms? It's not. The, a diet is an official assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. So the Emperor Charles V would be there, and it was held in... Worms, Germany. So it would be pronounced Worms. It looks to us by worms. And it's, it looks like you're eating worms, but it's actually the assembly at Worms. And so Luther was summoned there, and they promised him safe passage. That means we're not going to kill you coming and going to this thing. Now, of course, about 100 years before this, they had uh, said the same thing to John Huss, who was kind of a reformer before the reformers, and he went and he believed them. And then when they tr- found him guilty, they decided, well, you know what? We don't really have to keep promises to heretics. So they burned John Huss alive. And Hus actually means goose, and that really is where the phrase your goose is cooked comes from. Uh, so they, they burned him. They killed him. So Luther, when he's going to this, I mean, he recognized that he was likely going to die He was going to to make this confession to do this, but he was realizing he was probably kissing his life goodbye as he did this. He entered Worms. They said like a conquering hero. There were almost 2,000 people that came out to meet him when he came. That was on April 16. On April 17 was Luther's first hearing at Worms. And again, you have all these church leaders, archbishops, uh, Eck was an archbishop that was examining him, kind of the prosecutor. He said that the emperor was there, Charles V. And they put a huge pile of books on the table, and they asked Luther, Are these your books? And would he repudiate them? And Luther replied, The books are all mine, and I've written more. Eck said to him, Do you defend them, or do you care to reject a part of them? Luther stated, This touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, He who denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. And Eck basically said, think it over. You're a professor of theology. You knew why we called you here. You don't have an answer ready for us. Are you just stalling? Are you being uh, playing games with us? But I think there was really something about the gravity of the situation that hit Luther. and At this point, wondering, is Luther going to cave? Is he going to make the, the good confession, knowing that it, like it will cost him his life? Or will he kind of change his mind or slip out of it, as many have done? Luther knew the gravity of the situation. He, he trembled because he realized he was not only on trial before Charles V, but he was giving his testimony before God Almighty as he was doing this. So the next day, they call him back. The date for that is April 18, 1521. That's exactly 500 years ago today. Today is April 15, 2021. Luther's second hearing at Worms, they chose a larger hall, packed with the most powerful figures in Germany. Eck repeats the questions of the previous day. Luther says, you asked me yesterday whether the books were all mine And whether I would repudiate them, he said, they're all mine. But for the second question, they're not all of the same sort. And he basically said, well, I can't repudiate all of these. Some just have plain Bible teaching, and I'd be repudiating good stuff. And there's other things that are dealing with uh, specific issues. And yeah, there's some that are uh, things that you don't like, but I can't just repudiate them all. And so Eck was getting frustrated by, by this. Luther said to them, Instead of just having me reject all of these, tell me where my error is. Tell me what's wrong. Convince me from, from Scripture what is wrong with this. And he said, if you convince me from Scripture what's wrong, I'll be the first to throw these in the fire. Eck replied, your plea to be heard from Scripture is the one always made by heretics. You do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe and Haas. I ask you, Martin, Answer candidly and without horns, without playing games. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? And that's when Luther gave his famous reply. Luther replied, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns or without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. He gave this reply expecting that this would be the end of him. After deliberations, eventually Luther was convicted as a heretic. The emperor did decide to honor safe passage. They said, we'll give you safe passage back home. And so Luther they put him in a wagon to carriage to, to lead him back home and he had the understanding that safe passage was until he got back and then he'd be arrested and he'd be executed. And also, in the state that he was in, uh, the state of excommunication and, and the ban, that uh, it was legal, basically in the eyes of the church, for anyone that found him, they could kill him. Uh, and they could freely uh, do that without, without penalty as a convicted heretic. As Luth is, Luther is traveling back to this on May 4th, while riding through the Thurnigen Forest, five massed horsemen appear. And they attack the, the cart that he's, that he's in, and they overpower the, the people doing this. They put a bag over his head, and they whisk him away. And people assume he's been kidnapped, he's been killed. That's the end of Martin Luther. Turns out that these people were actually sent by one of Luther's protectors to fake his death, to fake his kidnapping. And they took Luther, and they, they took him to the Warpburg Castle, and they put him in hiding there. And while he was hiding there for 10 months, he, during that time, translated... The entire New Testament into German for the first time, so that the average person reading, reading German could understand the Word of God in their dialect. We think about this. If we want to be the type of Christian that has the same attitude when they're suffering that the early Christians had, that reformers like Martin Luther had, and just common everyday people that you don't hear of that still stand up under the pressures of this world. We need to be people that expect there is suffering. We need to be people that we love the glory of God and the word of God and the gospel of God more than we love our own safety. And we need to be people that we are willing to entrust our souls to our creator, to to Jesus Christ, as the one that will take care of us. And that no matter what happens to us in this life, that we find ourselves in the safe arms of the God that we have given ourselves to to take care of us. That's what it means to entrust. You're giving something of value to the care of another. You entrust your money to the bank. Have you entrusted your soul, your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you're still in danger. You're still in danger of eternal suffering. But the offer that God has for you here is for you to turn away from rebellion against him to realize the beauty of Jesus Christ and that he stands with arms open to receive you right now. Entrust yourself to his care and his salvation. You will find that you have a loving Savior that died for you and will never let you go. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for your great faithfulness. We thank you for your loving and open arms that receive us when we turn to you And we cast ourselves, our souls are being every part of us for eternity into your care, Lord God. We cannot earn our salvation. Luther couldn't and we can't either. But salvation isn't earned by us. It was earned by you and what you did for us. We can stand before a holy God because of what Jesus did. We can never meet your standards, but Jesus met the standards in our place as our substitute. We praise you for that. And Lord, we recognize that united to you for now, we're united in your suffering. And that's okay because it's for your glory. Help us to be strong in you. Help us to trust ourselves to your faithfulness. May you be glorified in our lives no matter what may come. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.